During the next few weeks, I'll have guests with me in the studio on Gesundheit with Jacobus, so I figured it would be nice to squeeze in another open lines this Saturday morning. I will bring different health topics I think are timely and important. You, on the other hand, can kick back, relax, and lend me your ear, or you may participate by sharing stories or by changing the topic. Let's have a good time. Gesundheit with Jacobus, Health Talk Radio, integrating allopathic and all-natural medicine one show at a time. Here is your host, Jacobus Hollowine. Good morning, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Yes, it is Gesundheit with Jacobus, and I'm your host, Jacobus Hollowine, as Chatwick just mentioned. Thanks so much for tuning in today. Uh, interesting topics. I call it an open lines today. If there's anything you want to share about health, healing, and healthy lifestyles. Today is your day. I have quite a few topics lined up again for the near future, and I, I want to let you know that, please, as we go through these topics, we're not here to diagnose, treat, or cure. It's all about sharing information that's out there, giving my personal opinion. Sometimes it is anecdotal information from stories that I have heard from people, customers that I've talked to throughout the years, things I may recall from interviews with experts on the show. Always, I recommend to you that if you are confused and concerned, do your own research on the radio. Of a, on, the <laughs> on the radio? No way. Yeah, <laughs> you can get it on the radio. But you go go to the internet, read books. There are some great books written. Wonderful articles are being written. They're often more easy to read. You get some good information that that gives you some pointers that you can use. So uh, <laughs> or see a physician of your choice, a specialist, and just become the best educated person you can be in your own life. So once again, thanks for tuning in today. There's plenty that I can talk about. I have three hours plus of information, so if you just want to kick back and relax, that's all good. If you like to contribute, if you have a question, you've been fighting something. I'm not saying that I have all the answers, but over the years, I have sat down with quite a few people. The topics are usually pretty spontaneous. I don't know exactly what they people want to talk about until they sit with me, but one thing I can tell you is that everybody has an interesting story and everybody has their own story. And what I often feel is that the symptoms that people are talking about are similar. So if you come and talk to me about a symptom and you just need something for that symptom, you may be surprised that I do not always guide you to a supplement. Even though I own a supplement store, but the point is that there is always a reason why something happens. And it is decisions we make and circumstances that are surrounding us that affect us. There are times when we have control, we should be taking control, and things will be much better. 
And there is times when we are so in a hurry, sometimes it's our own fault, and we start having problems. So we should have made better decisions. Doesn't mean that somebody who rolls through life and never has a problem made all the right decisions. I don't know. I don't know if there's enough research about that. If you want to talk about scientific research. However, I do believe that when people are having a an issue, that the underlying cause could very well be something that is not directly so-called connected. You you uh, in your own mind, in your own mental mind it may not feel that it is connected to that symptom or the cause and the symptom are really not related. And what has come to the front is that more and more the stressors that we are under have caused the body to start reacting in a way that seems unnatural and it causes symptoms thereby that are white flags that wave at us, that express symptoms that need to be addressed in order to stop the symptoms. So when we can find those those stressors and face them, that can make a difference. The other day I talked to somebody who lost somebody very dear in his life, and that was an absolute shock. And now, so many months later, he is still trying to get his feet on the ground and deal with the reality that his best friend is gone. And what happens is, is that as I talked to him, I said, when something this sad happens, the world keeps spinning at the same speed. And we really want to stand still to observe the moment And that's why we call it the moment of observation. We observe the moment and we want to give gratitude and express our grief and our sadness. And it almost seems we have no time because the actions that are surrounding us in our own world are dictating the speed with which we have to move. So for most people, we get caught up in the moment We get caught up again in the speed of things that happen, and we got to keep moving. We, 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 you know, you have to organize a funeral. Uh, uh, You have to deal with uh, financial changes. Uh, You have to deal with inheritances or wills or uh, work or sending cards or inviting people. There is so much involved, you have no time to actually sit there and, and grieve and have the memories, work on, with the memories. And so it isn't, it, for me, it, it, I see this more and more when people talk about symptoms, and I may have mentioned this on the show before. If somebody's been fighting something for the last six, seven years, there are usually something has happened seven and a half, eight years earlier, of, uh, before, so seven or eight years ago. So that means within 12 months of when these symptoms started to show up, Something happened that was drastic, a move to another state or leaving a favorite home, a a natural disaster, a hurricane, a fire, uh, a flood. Uh, You you maybe lost a loved one. You lost a job, uh, a divorce, relationship issues, a child who dies, 
maybe uh, yesterday, you know, I I I I talked to somebody and and she says uh, uh, two two of my daughters have gone through a divorce and it has really affected her as a mother. And then I go, that's really interesting. That those are moments that will start to define our thinking of the day. It starts us to realize that time is changing, times are changing, that we are changing, that we're getting older, that we we have to, it's time to reflect uh, what's going on, what was my role in this. And so when these thoughts start creeping up, many times we lose a feeling of positiveness. We lose a feeling of uh, grandeur about how good things were. And we have to stop and think and start doubting ourselves and anxiety can creep in. And then all of a sudden that becomes a, a red line in our life. We, we start having more and more anxiety attacks. We start having more and more stressors. We start more and more self-doubt. And we, we deal with that. Now, again, and, and I will bring this up during the show several times, everybody is different. Everybody is different. The way one person reacts to stress is very different than the next person. The, 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 some people are just put together in a way that fear doesn't phase them. I was talking the other day to somebody about this young climber, Alex Hanhold, who has been an unbelievable rock climber uh, in the world. And wherever he goes, he sets speed records, how fast he climbs up mountains. And there was a movie that just was released from him. It played in the theater over here. I think it's called Free Climb or Free... I think it was Free Climb. And he... Um, not Free Climb. He probably paid for it, but it was a Free Climb. Right, I have to emphasize the words a little different. <laughs> Any case, this young man, when they test his brain, they find out that in his in his brain, I think it is the amygdala, he there is absolutely no fear found in him. He he doesn't doubt himself. He he prepares and then he climbs these rocks and he is fearless. And there are people who are that way. Uh, you sometimes see killers, people who literally kill people, and they do that almost for a living. They have no sensitivity about the fact that they ruin somebody else's life. And it's not always the bad guy who dies. There is many times people who die by mistake uh, in these circumstances. So who are these people? What makes these people a certain way? Uh, You have people in Wall Street, in financial institutions who are ruthless, they go over anybody. They, they, they justify everything they do, and they therefore get certain accomplishments that if you look at that accomplishment, you can say, wow, they've done really great for themselves. If you look what path they took to get there, and maybe the people do, who were hurt because of the decisions that this individual made over the backs of other people, then you start to go like, well, that doesn't really sound so good. And so we, more and more with the media these days, we're getting exposed to people who have gotten rich quick, uh, who are violent, who are uh, sexual predators, that we, you know, financial, um, they manipulate the finances. And you go, this is interesting. I didn't know about this individual. And all of a sudden, your vision, change, vision changes. 
But at the same time, these are just our own individuals. Everybody will deal with their own stressors. Everybody will deal with their own uh, ailments that are or are not caused by certain stressors. And, and, and so we're all going to hit the end. And that is the fact of life. We're all going to die at some point. So it all comes down to how, what decisions do you make and how fast can you make those decisions at a young age that you work on improving the quality of your life. And I, and I see there are young people today who are very conscious, of, uh, conscientious about choices they make, about how to take care of their health, exercising, uh, doing meditation, yoga, doing things that activate their brain and their heart at the same time. So it is not just the, it's not just the always thinking about what can I do better. It is also finding the time to reflect if you even should go in that direction or not. And so the, the body and mind is one thing that will come up through the show because body-mind should be integrally connected. And a few weeks ago, I talked about the vagus nerve, how this is connected. The vagus nerve starts in the cerebellum and in the brainstem of the brain and then comes down kind of a, kind of a pretty strong-looking nerve, nervous system that starts spreading out like little rootlet, root systems and goes all the way to the bottom of the torso of the body. So not into the legs, but the bottom of the torso. And that involves organs, all the organs along the way, such as heart and pancreas and liver and the small intestine, colon, rectum. And what often happens is when, or not what often happens is, what happens with the vagus nerve is that things that are happening in the body are sent as a message up to the brain to let the brain decide what needs to be done next. So there is this constant communication between the brain and, let's say, the gut and the heart or the liver and the pancreas and the kidneys. And when, when you, your body starts not functioning right because of decisions you made on what you eat, for example, then that the constipation, the diarrhea, the irritability goes up to the brain. It goes through the vagus nerve north to the brain, the brain tries to survive and may hit the panic button uh, to wake up. And what happens next is that we there is a signal going on in the brain that creates a little anxiety and high stress or low stress. But it's not the same as being totally calm. That energy now is sent back down to through the vagus nerve to that organ or another organ, and we may find a release of stress in that organ. So we may have kidney problems, bladder problems. We may have diarrhea or constipation and wonder what just happened. We may have heart, uh, high heart rate or heartbeat. So we have to wonder what happened. Why does my heart rate go up over here? And it is because there is a stressor that was triggered in the brain and that starts to trickle down to the organs that we that need to be reacting so that we say, oh, there is something going on. What do I need to address here? So I hope you understand what I'm saying. 522-8255 is the number, 522-TALK, or text me at 266-7617. So my, my, my point is that when we have symptoms, 
especially in the core of the body. That is many times con- a connection, a, a, an outlet that the body uses through the vagus nerve to connect the brain with the rest of the body. So either the brain will get stressed and starts to affect our digestion, or when our digestion is just digestion is tested, we may say, okay, we need to take some dietary supplements. Sure, you can do that. You can take something for the stomach. You can do something with the stomach acid, the peptidols, all that stuff. But you need to find out why it is. Why do I all? Why did I not have this a month ago? Why do I have it today? Why have I had it for ten years? What happened eleven years ago? Or the colon? Why do I have diarrhea? Why do I have IBS? Why do I have Crohn's or colitis? There is a way to think about it. Now, not all of us are worried about our body. As long as it functions, as long as it walks from point A to point B, we often have a tendency to ignore the physical body. But the physical body is the vehicle that carries the mind and the spirit and the emotions uh, with it. So when the physical body starts to express and show issues that need to be addressed, then we it is important for us to realize that there could be an underlying cause. And that is one of the things that I love to chat about because to me, that's just an absolute fascinating topic to realize it's almost like a, a more three-dimensional approach to health. You cannot just say, well, these are your symptoms. Here you go. Take a pill, take a cream, uh, take an injection shot, do any of that, will solve your problem. It may solve it temporarily, but it doesn't, no, let me say it this way, it may, it may alleviate your symptoms temporarily, it doesn't resolve the actual issue. So since most of us have lived in or are still living in a type of rat race, I think it would be good to at some point find time to relax. Maybe one day a week, a Sunday, a Saturday, that you take a day for yourself to kind of recharge, to find time for yourself. You don't always have to do stuff every weekend uh, just because you want to get these projects done. You know, sometimes it's okay to hire somebody and let somebody else do it during the week, and you find time to do something else that is more beneficial for you and not take on an extra stress of a project that you think needs to be done before Monday morning. And then if something happens or you can't find the perfect part, you start stressing about this so-called relaxing project you were going to do. It is unreal how stress affects digestion, how, how we start eating differently. And this is one of the topics that I really want to bring up. It, it's, it's, it's about the liver. The liver has a very important role in our body, and what are some of the issues that come up with liver issues, with with liver disorders, and with either chronic liver disorders or perhaps simply with liver symptoms. So in any case, what is important here is that as we talk about our health, that when you listen to a show like this, Gesundheit with Jacobus, you have to expect that I will always be open for integrating the different modalities that are out there. Western medicine has great inventions and has 
great ways to help our body. But so does the historically long, long history of Ayurvedic medicine and Chinese medicine. And we, we find it in herbology. I, I think that many what we called witches in the olden days were actually women who would do research on herbs and do phenomenal work and help people. But it was weird, so to say, for some people because they were often... They were often maybe loners, and they were totally into Mother Nature, and they may have looked a little bit more, uh, how would you call it, uh, uh, rank, so to say, but that doesn't mean they were bad people. Uh, but within every group, there are weirdos, and with every group, there are people who, that is the way they express themselves. And within, when, if you, you think about, if you look at a group and you say, you know, a third or two-thirds of American people are developing cancer by the year 2040, then you look around in a, in a room that has 100 people and you go like, man, 70 of you are either going to get cancer or die from cancer. And it's like, it's the same with everything else. If you do great research, you probably will find people who will use that great research and actually are affecting the, uh, making it a negative thing and, and do something that will hurt other people. So in any case... Great to be with you this morning. Take a short break. When we come back, we're going to hit the topics running. Talk to you soon. I have a few topics I do want to talk about. Uh, marijuana. Marijuana, mental illness, and violence. I also like to talk about a, a simple product that has lots of great benefits. It is aged garlic extract. Great research has been done on that since the 1950s on aged garlic. And it's called how aged garlic extract can slash heart disease risk. Also, a little update, not update, I don't know what it is, but it has to do with Roundup and the Monsanto product that has now been uh, bought, they've been bought out by Bayer, by Bayer, Bayer Pharmaceuticals. I said aspirin, Bayer aspirin, of course. And Roundup, the dangers of Roundup and other pesticides. And then I want to talk about fatty liver disease and related illnesses. And do you have a fatty liver? So these are some topics that I have. So let's talk about the marijuana. Might as well get it out of the way. Huh? This is an uh, interesting article that was handed to me yesterday by a regular listener, and she said, you know, look into this. Now, I heard not so, just a few days ago, this week, on the TV that uh, one of the commentators on TV was saying that research has shown that the use of mar marijuana, regular marijuana, and, and especially, let's call it recreational in this case, can have a long-term effect on, let me say it this way, long-term, it can have an effect on the medical, the, the, the mind, and in people who are susceptible to this, it especially if there is some kind of a psychosis going on, it can turn into horrible violence. And there is there are worldwide studies going on about this, and it's coming out. So you have, on the one hand, the advocates that say marijuana should be allowed. It should be legal. 
and look at all the countries where marijuana is legalized and where there are no problems. Uh, the use of marijuana actually goes down, but if you, it, it's like telling children you cannot get any candy out of the out of the candy jar. Guess what they're going to do? They go to the candy jar. So their their philosophy is, if you uh, if you make it legal, less people will go for it to try it. They'll simply say, well, you know, smoking cigarettes is legal. You cannot do it in public, and not in in restaurants. But yeah, you can do it in public. People standing outside to smoke. But they they say it's not prohibitive. If you want to smoke, you can smoke. So I can see that. If you want to drink alcohol, you can do that. If you want to take prescription drugs, you can do that. So I can understand the philosophy of legalizing marijuana, especially because personally, I I feel that the the use of CBD, which is not a component of the cannabis sativa has had so many great benefits to so many people already. It is something we need to look into. However, like I said before, within within a crowd, there are always people that have some kind of an allergic reaction. And so it is important to look at the individual effect of something uh, like a smoking a marijuana uh, today, what effect it may have on the mental mind is called Marijuana, Mental Illness, and Violence. And it was uh, published this month, uh, of no, in January. And it is written by Alex Berenson. He is a graduate of Yale University with degrees in history and economics. He began his career in journalism in 1994 as a business reporter for the Denver Post, joined the financial news website thestreet.com in 1996, and he worked as an investigative reporter for the New York Times from 1999 to 2010, during which time he also served two stints as an Iraq war correspondent. In 2006, he published The Faithful Spy, which won the 2007 Edgar Award for first best first novel from the Mystery Writers of America. He has published 10 additional novels and two nonfiction books, The Number, How to Drive for Quarterly Earnings Corporate uh, Corrupted Wall Street, and corporate America, and tell your children the truth about marijuana, mental illness, and violence. All right. So this is what he says. This is actually an abbreviation from a speech that he gave. So Alex Berenson. And this is this is compelling. I mean, when I read it, I have to tell you, this is something, do whatever you want to do, but I think it is interesting to hear it and say, you know, maybe I need to do a little bit more research. And that is all what the purpose of my show is as well as what you need to do every day in your life. Am I going to cross the road while traffic is coming, or do I wait till the car is gone and then I cross the road? You're still going to cross the road. It just depends how you approach it, right? Am I going to eat that donut or not? Well, there's no donuts in the building here. So anyway, let me read a little bit about this. Uh, 70 miles northwest of New York is a hospital that looks like a prison. It's drab brick buildings, wrapped in layers of fencing and barbed wire. It's a, it's a hospital. This grim facility is called the Mid-Hudson Forensic Psychiatric Institute. It's one of three places the state of New York sends the criminally, the criminally mentally ill. Defendants judged not guilty by reason of insanity. Uh, 
Until recently, my wife Jackie, which is Dr. Jacqueline Berenson, was a senior psychiatrist there. Many of Mid-Hudson's 300 patients, many of Mid-Hudson's 300 patients are killers and arsonists. At least one is a cannibal. Most have been diagnosed with psychotic disorders like schizophrenia that provoke them to violence against family members or strangers. A couple of years ago, Jackie was telling me about a patient. In passing, she said something like, of course, he's been smoking pot his whole life. Of course, I said, yes, they all smoke. So, marijuana causes schizophrenia? I was surprised to say the least. I tended to be a libertarian on drugs. Years before, I'd covered the pharmaceutical industry for the New York Times. I was aware of the claims about marijuana as medicine, and I'd watched the slow spread of legalized cannabis without much interest. Jackie would have been within her rights to say, I know what I'm talking about, unlike you. Instead, she offered something neutral, like, I think that's what the big studies say. You should read them. So I did. The big studies, the little ones, and all the rest. I read everything I could find. I talked to every psychiatrist and brain scientist who would talk to me. And I soon realized that in all my years as a journalist, I had never seen a story where the gap between insider and outsider knowledge was so great or the stakes so high. That's an interesting statement. I began to wonder why, with the stocks of cannabis companies soaring and politicians promoting legalization as a low-risk way to raise tax revenue and reduce crime, I had never heard the truth about marijuana, mental illness, and violence. Over the last 30 years, psychiatrists and epidemiologists have turned speculation about marijuana's dangers into science. Yet, over the same period, a shrewd and expensive lobbying campaign has pushed public attitudes about marijuana the other way, and the effects are now becoming apparent. Almost everything you think you know about the health effects of cannabis, almost everything advocates and the media have told you for a generation, is wrong. They have told you marijuana has many different medical uses. In reality, marijuana and THC, its active ingredient, have been shown to work only in a few narrow conditions. So, is marijuana evil? Absolutely not. Is it for everybody? Absolutely not. They are most commonly prescribed, they are most commonly prescribed for pain relief, but they are rarely tested against other pain relief drugs like ibuprofen. Now, I'm not saying you should take ibuprofen here. And in July 2018, a large four-year study of patients with chronic pain in Australia showed cannabis use was associated with greater pain over time. They have told you cannabis can, can stem opioid use. Two new studies show how marijuana can help fight the opioid epidemic. According to Wonk Blog, a Washington Post website, in April 2018. And it says that marijuana's effect as a painkiller make it a potential substitute for opiates. In reality, like alcohol, marijuana is too weak as a painkiller to work for most people who truly need opiates, such as terminal cancer patients. Even cannabis advocates like Rob Kempia, the co-founder of the Marijuana Policy Project, acknowledge 
that they have always viewed medical marijuana laws primarily as a way to protect recreational users. Let me read the last sentence again. Even cannabis advocates like Rob Kempia, who is the co-founder of the Marijuana Policy Project, acknowledge that they have always viewed medical marijuana laws primarily as a way to protect recreational users. As for the marijuana, the quote, marijuana reduces opioid use theory, unquote, it is based largely on a single paper comparing overdose death by state before 2010 to the spread of medical marijuana laws. And the paper's finding is probably a result of simple geographic coincidence. The opiate epidemic began in Appalachia, while the first states to legalize medical marijuana were in the West. Since 2010, as both the epidemic and medical marijuana laws have spread nationally, the finding has vanished. And the United States, the Western country with the most cannabis use, also has by far the worst problem with opioids. Research on individual users, a better way to trace cause and effect than looking at aggregate state-level data, so research on individual users consistently shows that marijuana use leads to other drugs use. For example, a January 2018 paper in the American Journal of Psychiatry showed that people who used cannabis in 2001 were almost three times as likely to use opioids three years later, even after adjusting for other potential risks. Most of all, advocates have told you, so the, the, the marijuana advocates have told you, that marijuana is not just safe for people with psychiatric problems like depression, but it is a potential treatment for those patients. So it's not just safe for people with psychiatric problems like depression, but that it is a potential treatment for those patients. On its website, the Cannabis Delivery Service Ease, E-A-Z-E, offers the, quote, best marijuana strains and products for treating anxiety. How does cannabis help depression, quote, unquote, is the topic of an article in Leafly, Leafly. So that is the largest cannabis website. How does cannabis help depression? But a mountain of peer-reviewed research in top medical journals show that marijuana can cause or worsen severe mental illness, especially psychosis, which is the medical term for a break from reality. Teenagers who smoke marijuana regularly are about three times as likely to develop schizophrenia, the most devastating psychotic disorder. After an exhaustive review, the National Academy of Medicine found the National Academy of Medicine found in 2017 that quote, cannabis use is likely to increase the risk of developing schizophrenia and other psychosis. The higher the use, the greater the risk, unquote. Also that, quote, regular cannabis use is likely to increase the risk, increase the risk for developing social anxiety disorder. So you can look at it and say, likely to increase the risk. We don't know if it does or doesn't. But as the article continues, you'll notice that some great research has shown that people with regular use 
unless maybe you're Willie Nelson. I, I said yesterday, so, well, Willie Nelson's been smoking pot pretty much his whole life, and he seems pretty coherent most of the time in his old, ripe old age. But that's maybe, an, again, like I said earlier in the first half hour, within a crowd of people who react well to something, there are those who don't react well to something. So to simply say it's good for everybody may not work and actually could backfire. Over the past decade, as legalization has spread, patterns of marijuana use and the drug itself have changed in dangerous ways. Legalization has not led to a huge increase in people using the drug casually. About 15% of Americans used cannabis at least once in 2017, up from 10% in 2006, so that's 11 years, according to a large federal study called the National Survey on Drug Use and Health. Now, by contrast, so I want to read that sentence again because every time <clears throat> we're mentioning numbers, the, the problem comes up that, let me take a sip, Every time you mention numbers, uh, we lose people. So I got to read this again. Legalization has not led to a huge increase in people using the drug casually. About 15% of Americans use cannabis at least once in 2017. That is up from 10% in 2006. This is according to a large federal study called the National Survey on Drug Use and Health. By contrast... About 65% of Americans had a drink in the last year. So compared to that, there are still more people drinking alcohol than people using cannabis. However, the number of Americans who use cannabis heavily is soaring. In 2006, about 3 million Americans reported using cannabis at least 300 times a year, which is the standard for daily use. That makes sense. In 2017, so 3 million Americans reported. So in 2006, about 3 million Americans reported using cannabis at least 300 times a year. By 2017, that number had nearly tripled to 8 million, approaching the 12 million Americans who drank alcohol every day. But another way, 1 in 15, put another way, 1 in 15 drinkers consumed alcohol daily. One in 15 drinkers consumed alcohol daily. About one in five marijuana users used cannabis that often. Cannabis users today are also consuming the drug that is far more potent than ever before, as measured by the amount of THC. The THC is, is, is uh, short for Delta-9 tetrahydrocannabinol which is the chemical in cannabis responsible for its psychoactive effects that it contains. In the 1970s, the last time this many Americans used cannabis, most marijuana contained less than 2% THC, 2%. Today, marijuana routinely contains 20 to 25% THC, thanks to sophisticated farming and cloning techniques, as well as to demand by users to a demand by users for cannabis that produces a stronger high more quickly. In states where cannabis is legal, many users prefer extracts that are nearly pure THC. Think of the difference between near beer and a martini or even grain alcohol to understand the difference. 
These new patterns of use have caused problems with the drugs to soar. In 2014, people who had diagnosable cannabis use disorder, diagnosable cannabis use disorder, 2014, which is the medical term for marijuana abuse or addiction, made up in 2014, made up about 1.5% of Americans. But they accounted for 11% of all the psychosis cases in the emergency room, which is 90,000 cases, 250 a day, triple the number of 2006. In states like Colorado, emergency room physicians have become experts on dealing with cannabis-induced psychosis. So again, we're talking about numbers. So let me repeat. In 2014, people who had what is called diagnosable cannabis use disorder, which is the medical term for marijuana abuse or addiction, they made up about 1.5% of Americans. But they accounted for 11% of all the psychosis cases in emergency rooms, which was 90,000 cases or 250 a day, which just tripled the number in 2006. Cannabis advocates often argue that the drug cannot be as neurotoxic as studies suggest because otherwise Western countries would have seen population-wide increases in psychosis alongside rising use. In reality, accurately tracking psychosis cases is impossible in the United States. The government carefully tracks diseases like cancer with central registries, but no such registry exists for schizophrenia or other severe mental illnesses. On the other hand, research from Finland and Denmark, two countries that track mental illness more comp comprehensively, show a significant increase in psychosis since 2000, following an increase in cannabis use. And in September of last year, a large federal survey found a rise in serious mental illness in the United States as well, especially among young adults, the heaviest users, the heaviest users of cannabis. According to this latter study, so the, 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 the survey, 7.5% of adults, 7.5% of adults ages 18 to 25 met the criteria for serious mental illness in 2017, which is double the rate in 2008. What is especially striking is that adolescents 12 to 17 do not show these increases in cannabis use and several mental illness, illnesses. This is actually a sentence that's a little confusing to me when I read it first. So I want to say this again. According to the latter study, 7.5% of adults ages 18 to 25 met the criteria for serious mental illness in 2017, which is double the rate in 2008. What is especially striking is that adolescents ages 12 to 17 don't show these increases in cannabis use and severe mental illness. So these are definitely things that we need to keep in mind. Now, a caveat, this federal survey doesn't count individual cases and it lumps psychosis with other severe mental illness. So it isn't as accurate as the Finnish or Danish studies, nor do any of these studies prove that rising cannabis use has caused population-wide increases in psychosis or other mental illness. The most that can be said 
is that they offer intriguing evidence of a link. I really want to continue with this because it is important. I want people to find freedom and to use whatever they want. But at the same time, if it turns into a psychosis whereby you could create problems with other people, we got we to gotta be careful with that. Gesundheit with Jacobus will be right back. Thanks for listening. Good morning, caller. Your name, please. How can we help you? Well, it can help me not be the odd man out anymore. Now I've, I can start labbering because you're having a program about pain and trauma. And I was going to call up about how I was being mugged, how I got mugged in the big city. And then somebody called up and said, don't hear, we want to, don't want to hear about the regulars call so much. And that froze me. And I didn't get to tell my story about the pain and trauma of being mugged in the big city. Yeah. So now I can amble on about various things, but we'll skip the pain and trauma one. All right. Uh, talking about what people use, you were saying how they use alcohol, marijuana, some extent. How about that the people use so much rubber? One time I called up, and you should know as general information, if you're in the health food movement, that Subway was found be putting flip-flops yoga mat type rubber, shoe rubber in their uh, bread. They were doing it in the United States, but it was illegal in Europe. But as soon as somebody blew the whistle, they dropped it like a hot potato. But I found that uh, that didn't stop a lot of other countries, Sara Lee, Pillsbury, Tyson, Weight Watchers, Wonder Bread, McDonald, English, uh, McMuffin, RV Sesame Seed, Starbucks, Muckler peanut butter, Walmart still having what's called ADA as a carbonamide, which is a foaming agent yeah. to make bread more tasty. And so, chewy, uh, more chewy too. Yeah, and so uh, <laughs> if people are worried about other people using marijuana and things, to think of all the rubber that people are putting down. So that's what a lot of us that have been in the health food movement for years have been saying. All the substances and chemicals that the United States has allowed as experiments in this nation, Europe would never uh, allow for. The United States, and I just looked this up, has the 31st longest lifespan of the 184 countries listed by the World Health Organization. It's just about tied with Cuba. Yeah, uh, it sure is not doing. It sure not doing something right. Right. And then uh, the the one last kicker about substances and chemicals that get in the foods at the senior center was I sometimes they had some sample things to drink out in the hall, and they were creamy strawberry drinks. Yeah. And I read the label, and they didn't have one bit of strawberry, and they could be called creamy strawberry. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and not, it's all chemicals. So this country has gotten a lot of chemical habits besides marijuana and all these other various no-nos that uh, people are uh, going tish, tish, tish to each other about. Yes. Well, I, I agree with you, Daniel, that we, if you look at grocery stores, how many grocery stores we have these days, how much food is on the shelf, and how that food is produced, who is in behind the food production, what is being done to what we call uh, feed the planet. 
uh, the, they say there is more food today that feeds the planet. But one of the problems is that we are stuffing ourselves. One of the articles I was reading, I don't know if it was uh, it was yet last night, it says we are getting a lot of macronutrients. We're just not, we're just sugars and carbohydrate, carbohydrates, meats, proteins, uh, fats, but we don't get enough micronutrients. And so the one of the problems that we have in the whole aging is that we age because we simply have become deficient in the nutrients that actually work behind the scenes and deal with all the small parts that need to be nourished. And when the small parts are not nourished, then the large parts really don't, cannot hold their own in the long run. So a lot of aging is caused by a deficiency in nutrients, a single B vitamins, uh, some minerals, the uh, the uh, the uh, single amino acids, the uh, the, the variety of uh, nutrients that we need in order to survive. And 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 I hear what you're saying. And why do uh, does a senior center that where everything should be so focused on super health so that we can keep the the aging generation strong healthy and sharp in mind why do we feed them food that they don't even look at labels they they just eat whatever they get and so i can see your point that that is a problem but then again there is free will and and the reason why a show like mine is here is because i want to bring to the people some things that i read that make you think that inspire you to start reading labels and to say at some point that it's not just always Daniel R. Peterson who is the one who complains, but that other people are going to say, you know what, it makes total sense, Daniel. You know, I, I am against this too. I want fresh strawberry juice and, and I don't want any sugar added to it. I want it fresh. And all of a sudden, you're going to start seeing that if other people start speaking up and no, don't make you the spokesperson all the time, that uh, changes will start to happen, not just locally, but nationwide. And and as far as the health of the nation is concerned, I, I do want to say to you that I don't like the comparisons with Europe all the time. It's not just with, to do with you, but people, you hear commercials in Europe, you know, like Europe. I've never heard about this babble thing that they're talking about every hour on the radio uh, to make people learn another language. You learn how to speak three or four languages while you go through uh, uh, sixth, seventh grade and just all the way to 12th grade. You learn three to four languages. So it's not that Babbel is helping people to get better. It's, it's uh, and by the way, it is bubble, B-A-B-B-A-E-L. That is a Dutch word that means uh, to chat. Uh, in any case, I don't like the comparison. And as a matter of fact, I was reading... This morning, a little article on the Dutch, uh, uh, one of the Dutch uh, apps on my phone, the Dutch News, and it was talking about the unbelievable pollution that is happening in the Netherlands with all the waste of pharmaceutical and material, as well as uh, um, uh, surgical equipment and needles and 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 just waste it sits in buckets they throw it here and there and everywhere it has become such a big problem that communities cities villages are complaining to the government and said you got to go clean this stuff up because there are people rummaging in it uh, they they can make out of some of the 
ingredients. They can make ecstasy. They can make other drugs. They simply pick it up and start using it. And it is absolutely how what is going on in Europe, Daniel, it's not all hunky-dory over there. There is a lot of issues, and I, the prescription drugs are out of control over there as well. Maybe a little bit later than the United States, but you give it another five years, and you're going to see that they're catching up with the United States just as well. All right, here are two things, and then I'll go uh, that uh, these uh, bottles of... Uh creamy strawberry were samples that were laying in the middle of uh, the front lobby at the senior center. So uh, uh, I, I, it's probably not real ethical uh, that you're <clears throat> having uh, a uh, product laying there that, that people could take free just laying on a uh, table in the middle of the room in the uh, lobby uh, like that. Um, and the other thing is uh, that Anthony William, who I mention a lot, uh, says, for instance, honey has micro-micronutrients that science hasn't even developed the instruments yet that could measure them. So there are foods that have uh, uh, nutrients that uh, science is still far behind them to even um, measure uh, the goodness and the... Uh, vitality that they can deliver yeah uh it's like the white potato uh science has, has kind of a dim view of it but he says uh there are a lot of uh good things that uh the instruments of science can't even tell that the uh white potato has because it it looks uh so much of a plain jane yeah true and by the way i want to tell you that uh i don't know if i should say you should be proud of me but uh, I will discuss an article by Anthony Williams today on the show. So I, uh, there was an article in the Wellbeing Journal, and it talks about, uh, it's from Anthony Williams about the liver. Uh, what if you have a fatty liver? I know that you have brought up the topic of liver before, yeah. so maybe we can highlight some of this. And uh, I don't agree with everything he says, and I will bring that up during the article. But it is good to become more aware about the very, very, very important function of the liver and the tremendous amount of diseases that we have with re related to the liver, as well as the amount of people who are lining up to get liver transplants because they have damaged them so much, including many people in their 20s and 30s already. So you cannot just live like crazy and expect to not have any effect by it. If it doesn't come outwardly, it starts to go inwardly, and that means that it has to go through the liver, and the liver has to take the brunt. So I will discuss that. Yeah, he calls it a critter, that it's it's aware of what's going on. It's doing its best to help us out, uh, and it has some uh, uh, life to it, and we should be aware of uh, that we got to do our share to help it, too. Yeah. Okay, well, i got to keep right. going. Thank you so much, yeah, Daniel. Yeah. Okay, Okay. bye-bye. Bye-bye. 522-8255. 522-TALK is the number. So I'm not going to go into that article at this point. I would like to continue with the talk till, um, what shall we say? I would like to continue with the talk about marijuana. And so as I was discussing just that study, so uh, research from Finland and Denmark, two countries that track mental illness more comprehensively, shows a significant increase in psychosis 
since 2000. Important to know. And so, again, the article that I'm reading from is titled, was published in January of this year, and it is called Marijuana, Mental Illness, and Violence by Alex Berenson, uh, who is a journalist, investigative journalist, and his wife is a senior psychiatrist at the uh, Mid-Hudson Forensic Psychiatric Institute, which is just 70 miles northwest of New York. And so she deals with people who are dealing with severe psychosis, violence, murderers, addicts. One is even a cannibal. And you talk about people who are severely mentally disturbed. They cannot function in regular society. And that is really sad because all of these were born at one point as a pure baby who did the best they could to survive and who wanted to learn. They wanted to learn the lessons of life. They wanted to learn how to make things and how to heal things and how to, how to make things better in general. And somehow they got misguided. And, and as this Dr. Berenson says in her own, to her husband, all these, those people have used pot their whole life. So why is that? We don't know. And, but things have changed. So one of the things that they're mentioning is um, advocates for people with mental illness. Advocates for people with mental illness do not like discussing the link between schizophrenia and crime. So they're advocates. So they pretty much want to sweep things under the rug, so to say. Advocates for people with mental illness do not like discussing the link between schizophrenia and crime. They fear it will stigmatize people with the disease. Well, the truth is the truth is the truth. You just got to talk about it, get it out, and try to solve a problem. And then it it actually mentions NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. And we've had many shows throughout the the last six years about NAMI and, and the work of NAMI. And they say most people with mental illness are not violent. Emphasis on most. Most people with mental illness are not violent. The National Alliance on Mental Illness on NAMI explains on its website. But wishing away the link cannot make it disappear. In truth, psychosis is a shockingly high risk factor for violence. The best analysis came in 2009 in a paper in PLOS Medicine medicine by Dr. Sina Fazel of Faisal, an Oxford University psychiatrist and epidemiologist, drawing on earlier studies. The paper found that people with schizophrenia, the people with schizophrenia are five times as likely to commit violent crimes as healthy people and almost 20 times as likely to commit homicide. So they discovered that schizophrenia, people with schizophrenia, are five times as likely to commit violent crimes as healthy people and almost 20 times as likely to commit homicide. This is an important statistics because it comes, it goes on. We sometimes wonder, who are these people who grab a gun and start killing people? There is something, it's not to do with the gun in this case. It has to do with the mental, the state of mind. And the, the, if you look at a person And you see the person standing and wearing jeans and a T-shirt and a jacket and maybe a baseball cap and sunglasses. You go like, oh, it looks like a normal person. 
but you don't know what's behind the facade. You don't know what the people are thinking. That their thought may be, I gotta go kill people in ten minutes. I'm gonna kill that person and that person, that person. I mean, who are these people? Who thinks that way? In truth, psychosis is a shockingly high risk factor for violence. So Nami's statement that most people with mental illness are not violent is, of course, accurate, given that most simply means more than half. But it is deeply misleading. Schizophrenia is rare. But people with the disorder commit an appreciable fraction of all murders in the range of 6 to 9%. The best way to deal with the stigma is to reduce the violence, says Dr. Sheila Hodgins, a professor at the University of Montreal who has studied mental illness and violence for more than 30 years. This is such an interesting report. It definitely needs to make people think. You, you can talk. You, it's not, you know, I've been jumping on the bandwagon to get marijuana legalized. But you have to think about these facts before it really happens. If people want to use it, it's one thing. Do we make it legal and allow even young people to use it? What is the cutoff time? If 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 the Democrats say we got to lower the voting age till 16, what is an age that we say now you can smoke marijuana, now you cannot? These are all things that we got to keep in mind. Why is 14 not okay? So we're going to take another break, and when we come back, more about this. The more we learn, the more we actually realize, wow, interesting topic, and there is so much more to learn about it. So the more you learn, the more you realize you actually don't know yet because all of a sudden a veil has been lifted on something that was hidden forever. We just as human beings have never learned about these things, all of a sudden it comes out, and if we can accept it as truth— What are we going to do with it? Are we going to make changes in our own life or are we going to stay the same course? We should start making changes. But how does that affect our life? How does it affect our family? How does it affect the people who are close to us? Some people within a family are ready to make changes for the better, but it kind of ostracizes them from the rest of the family. Is that the right choice? Is it good to be so become socially awkward and, and stand your own ground, or is there ways that we don't become fanatic, but that we are really finding a balance how to slowly move into a new direction that that is uh, that is going to be helpful for us. Now, obviously, when we are being diagnosed with a certain disease or disorder, especially when you realize that it can turn into something very terminal, or if it is already terminal, It is your choice to make drastic changes. It is your choice to make drastic changes. And that is one of those things that for many people, to wrap their head around it, you need a little bit of time. And as I said, the world keeps turning fast. And we are just sitting on that earth and spinning around with it. For us to stand still and ponder things is not always easy, it's not always practical, and therefore also the New Year's resolutions that people make are usually get left behind as soon as February hits and comes around. So changes that we make are made by us. We're in charge, 
we can do this. Think about it. Realize how much power you have, how much power you really possess in order to make a change if you need to make a change. You feel you need to make a change, you want to make a change, let it be for the better and see if that fits in your diet, lifestyle, family life, etc. to make those changes unless you know it can be very devastating. Good morning, caller. Thanks for waiting while I was talking. What is your name? How can we help you? This is Pat, and I was wondering, there's no ill effects in, in taking hemp oil, is there? No, it's no. It's not. It's okay, not. Very, very good. Thank you. you. You mean THC in hemp oil? It's just, there's no, it's CBD oil. Oh, if you take CBD oil, is the THC in it? It does have? It does not, no. No. When when people buy, okay, there is regular hemp oil you can put on a salad or you can take it in a shake, and that is primarily extracted for your omega-6s and some omega-3s and omega-9s. When you talk about the, uh, the CBD oil, the cannabidiol oil, that is a, the way these industrial hemp is grown. So this is not grown under uh, artificial light. This is literally growing under the sunlight. And, and more and more are we growing these in the United States, and we can harvest this. And these plants may have a very small amount, less than 0.3% THC. So that is an extremely small amount. If you talk less than 0.3%. So the ones that we were talking about are the marijuana that has 25% THC in it or more. Some people want to have almost 80-90% THC and they want to use that because they are looking for the high. Uh, This is not comparable to that, Pat, no. Okay, fine. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. 522-8255. Great question because... Uh, everything gets put on the same stack, right? We think about marijuana, we think about hemp, cannabis, uh, CBD, THC. The, the, these terms are being tossed uh, quite a bit. Now, unless you're drinking regular hemp oil on your cell and you start becoming aggressive, I would probably change oil. Maybe you just don't like the taste. So NAMI's, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, a statement that most people with mental illness, most people with mental illness are not violent, is of course accurate, given that most simply means more than half. But it is deeply misleading. Schizophrenia is rare, but people with the disorder commit an appreciable fraction of all murders in the range of 6 to 9%. The best way to deal with the stigma is to reduce the violence says Dr. Sheila Hudgens, a professor at the University of Montreal who has studied mental illness and violence for more than 30 years. The Marijuana Psychosis Violence Connection Marijuana Psychosis Violence Connection is even stronger than those figures suggest. People with schizophrenia are only moderately more likely to become violent than healthy people when they are taking antipsychotic medicine and avoiding recreational drugs. But when they use drugs, their risk of violence skyrockets. You don't just have an increased risk of one thing. These things occur in clusters, 
is what Dr. Faisal told me, told uh, the, the writer, Alex Berenson. Along with alcohol, the drug that psychotic patients use more than any other is cannabis. So along with alcohol, the drug that psychotic patients use more than any other is cannabis. A 2010 review of earlier studies in schizophrenia bulletin found that 27% of people with schizophrenia had been diagnosed with cannabis use disorder in their lives. 27% with schizophrenia, one in four. And unfortunately, despite its reputation of making users relaxed and calm, cannabis appears to provoke many of them to violence. A Swiss study of 265 psychotic patients published in Frontier of Forensic Psychiatry last June found that over a three-year period, young men with psychosis who used cannabis had a 50% chance of becoming violent. That risk was four times higher than of those with psychosis who did not use, even after adjusting for factors such as alcohol use. Other researchers have produced similar findings. In 2013, a paper in an Italian psychiatric journal examined almost 1,600 psychiatric patients in southern Italy and found that cannabis use was associated with a tenfold increase in violence. The most obvious way that cannabis fuels violence in psychotic people is through its tendency to cause paranoia, something even cannabis advocates acknowledge the drug can cause. The risk is so obvious that users joke about it and dispensaries advertise certain strains as less likely to induce paranoia. Well, that tells you something, right? And for people with psychotic disorders, paranoia can fuel extreme violence. A 2007 paper in the Medical Journal of Australia on 88 defendants who had committed homicide during psychotic episodes found that most believed they were in danger from the victim, and almost two-thirds reported misusing cannabis more than alcohol and amphetamines combined. Yet, the link between marijuana and violence doesn't appear limited to people with pre-existing psychosis. Researchers have studied alcohol and violence for generations, proving that alcohol is a risk factor for domestic abuse, assault, and even murder. Far less work has been done on marijuana, in part because advocates advocates have stigmatized anyone who raises the issue. But studies showing that marijuana use is a significant risk factor for violence have quietly piled up. Many of them weren't even designed to catch the link, but they did. Dozens of such studies exist. Dozens of such studies exist covering everything from bullying by high school students to fighting among vacationers in Spain. In most cases, studies find that the risk is at least as significant as with alcohol. A 2012 paper in the Journal of Interpersonal Violence, the Journal of Interpersonal Violence, I didn't even know it existed, they examined a federal survey of more than 9,000 adolescents and found that marijuana use was associated with the doubling of domestic violence. 
a 2017 paper in Social Psychiatry, excuse me, in the magazine Social Psychiatry and Psychiatric Epidemiology, examined drivers of violence among 6,000 British and Chinese men and found that drug use, the drug nearly always being cannabis, translated into a fivefold increase in violence. Today, that risk is translating into real-world impacts. Before states legalized recreational cannabis, advocates said that legalization would let police focus on hardened criminals, criminals rather than marijuana smokers, and thus reduce violent crime. Some advocates go as far as to claim that legalization has reduced violent crime. In a 2017 speech calling for federal legalization, U.S. Senator Cory Booker, who is in the news because he's running for president, U.S. Senator Cory Booker said that, quote, states that have legalized marijuana are seeing decreases in violent crime, unquote. He was wrong. The first four states to legalize marijuana for recreational use were Colorado and Washington in 2014 and Alaska and Oregon in 2015. Combined, those four states had about 450 murders and 30,300 aggravated assaults in 2013. Combined, these four states had about 450 murders and 30,300 aggravated assaults in 2013. Last year, 2018, they had almost 620 murders and 38,000 aggravated assaults, an increase of 37% for murders and 25% for aggravated assaults, far greater than the national increase even after accounting for differences in population growth. Well, that is, that is fascinating information, in my opinion, because this deals with our country. Knowing exactly how much of the increase is related to cannabis is impossible without researching every crime. But police reports, news stories, and arrest warrants suggest a close link in many cases. For example, last September, police in Longmont, Colorado, arrested Daniel Lopez for stabbing his brother Thomas to death as a neighbor watched. Daniel Lopez had been diagnosed with schizophrenia and was, quote-unquote, self-medicating with marijuana, according to an arrest affidavit. In every state, not just those where marijuana is legal, cases like Lopez's are far more common than either cannabis or mental illness advocates will acknowledge. Cannabis is also associated with the disturbing number of child death from abuse and neglect, Many more than alcohol and many more than cocaine, methamphetamines, and opioids combined. This is according to reports from Texas, one of the few states to provide detailed information on drug use by perpetrators. These crimes, so what I'm reading from, if you just tuned in, I'm reading an article that was published in 2019, this year, January. It's called Marijuana, Mental Illness, and Violence. And it is uh, written by Alex Berenson, who gave a speech about this. Berenson, B-E-R-E-N-S-O-N. 
a graduate of Yale University with the degrees in history and economics. His wife is Dr. Jacqueline Berenson, Jackie Berenson. She was a senior psychiatrist at Mid-Hudson's Forensic Psychiatric Institute where people are dealing with a lot of violence and um, they're, they're really behind barbed wire and closed doors and uh, they, they probably never see the the regular uh, society in a normal way. Of, uh, they will never see it again. They're stuck for life. <clears throat> These crimes rarely receive more than local attention, so where children are being hurt. These crimes rarely receive more than local attention. Psychosis-induced violence takes particularly ugly forms and is frequently directed at helpless family members. The elite national media prefers to ignore the crimes as tabloid fodder. Even police departments, which see this violence up close, have been slow to recognize the trend, in part because the epidemic of opioid overdose death has overwhelmed them. So the opioids are so shocking that it almost seems that is so bad we have to focus on it because um, if you take if you take fentanyl, uh, opioids, cocaine, morphine, if you take uh, you know codeine, oxycodone, cotton, and all these painkillers, then oxycodone, then you can actually die from an overdose. That's the thing with marijuana. You don't really die from smoking marijuana. And there has to be a way to know. Now, there are people who smoke marijuana. They're just the neatest people, very sharp. Um, uh, I've talked to many of them, and they have smoked marijuana, use marijuana in another way, in another way, and they're very clear and very sharp. I'm not talking about those people. It is just before you say everybody can use it, there is a reason why marijuana, in a way, should be looked at and how we're going to approach this. I'm not the law. I'm just telling you, based on things that I read, what I think we need to be aware of. You cannot just say no marijuana because it exists. It is a natural product, and even though some of it has been manipulated, marijuana grows naturally, and it has a lot of healing components. It is just that when you start extracting the one component, the THC, which is so mind-enhancing and, and call, can cause psychosis, that we need to look at this again and be very careful who gets their hands on this and who smokes it. For centuries, so, so it says over here, so the black tide of psychosis and the red tide of violence are rising steadily almost unnoticed on a slow green wave. For centuries, people worldwide have understood that cannabis causes mental illness and violence, just as they have known that opioids cause addiction and overdose. Hard data on the relationship between marijuana and madness dates back 150 years to British asylum registers in India. Yet, 20 years ago, the United States moved to encourage wider use of cannabis and opiates. In both cases, we decided we should we could outsmart these drugs, that we could have the benefits without the cost, and in both cases we were wrong. Opioids are riskier, and the overdose death they cause 
they cause a more imminent crisis. So we have focused on those. Now think about all the families who are just destroyed, simply destroyed because of the opioid use. And we talked about that. It's not just the person who dies. It is everybody involved for a reason that was so unnecessary. And I, I do believe that, that, that if we take famous people like Philip Seymour Hoffman and Heath Ledger, I don't think that people like that were thinking about dying and killing themselves, but they did it themselves because they were using drugs that were probably laced with either fentanyl or carfentanil, which is the fentanyl that is used to kill or to seduce large animals. It's 10,000 ti- 10, times more potent than morphine. You lace that in a pill or powder to somebody, literally you can kill them. So because you find them alone in a bed, you think they must have committed suicide. Committed suicide means you willingly do something. You know what you're going to do. I do not believe that everybody who dies of an opioid overdose is thinking about killing themselves. They want to get that high, which is stupid enough that they want that, but that's neither here nor there. I do not believe that those people say, I'm going to use this extra grain, grain because that is like a grain of salt. It, 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 it is a very, very small particle. When you add that to heroin or cocaine, it can literally kill you. In marijuana, it's different. It doesn't kill you. But what does it do to the mind? And how does that affect the people in your life? I remember, uh, how long is that ago? Maybe 20 years ago. And there was, a, there was a police detective who was doing a lot of research on marijuana. And he was, he was traveling through the country, going to schools and educate people about the possible dangers of marijuana use. And, and as he had been to Belgrade, he was telling about after he'd given the lecture to all the students, a student came up to him and told him that at night the boy sleeps in the truck outside in the driveway because his father is smoking marijuana and is getting violent and he is afraid for his life. So he locks the doors and he just sleeps in the truck. That are things that happen. These are not per se isolated instances. The, the issue for me, what I often feel, is as adults, we are the one, we are like the changing one. Changing diapers in your brain. <laughs> this is Gesundheit with Jacobus. We are the ones that make the choices. And so it is as adults, we are so responsible. So let it be something where you start taking control. Set the example for your partner. Set the example for uh, your children and for the generations to come. Set the example for your colleagues. You know, be somebody who lives responsibly, whatever that means in your life. So stay tuned. We're going to take a break. And after that, we have one more hour to go. Gesundheit with Jacobus. We'll be back. Bye-bye. So at this point, we are almost at the end of the article by Alex Berenson who wrote an article about marijuana, mental illness, and violence. And I hope that it makes sense to you. I am just sharing the story. It doesn't mean that I say, therefore, that everything 
is that that means that, you know, this is bad, we cannot do this. It is just that there's a large amount of people in the different international and national studies that have been done where we see that people who are already having psychotic episodes and already are fighting anxiety and depression, medical marijuana use can actually aggravate that and bring violence into the, the behavior of the person. And that has been proven in plenty of reports. So I, I want to finish the last part of what I was talking about and then close out the article. For centuries, people worldwide have understood that cannabis causes mental illness and violence, just as they have known that opioids cause addiction and overdose. Heart data and opioids, you say, well, but wait a second. Opioids have only been around shortly. No, 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 no. Opium was used for a long time, and we knew exactly what that did to people. And laudanum was found in little alcohol, and many women were using laudanum. Um, actually, I, I saw the other day, I was watching the uh, Wyatt Earp movie. I think that was the one with uh, Kevin Costner. No, Kurt Russell, the one with Kurt Russell. And um, his wife is constantly sipping alcohol because she has so much pain. And so one of them says, oh, are you, uh, you know... <laughs> You're, you're taking your medicine, and, and that's what she wants because that laudanum, laudanum in it, L-A-U-D-E-N-U-M, laudanum, uh, which is an, a, a derivative of opium, and so is morphine and codeine, and so is heroin. So heart data on the relationship between marijuana and madness dates back 150 years to British asylum registers in India. Yet, 20 years ago, the United States moved to encourage wider use of cannabis and opioids. In both cases, we decided we could outsmart these drugs, that we could have the benefits without the cost. And in both cases, we were wrong. Opiates are riskier, and the overdose death they cause, they cause a more imminent crisis. So we have focused on those. But soon enough, the mental illness and violence that follows cannabis use will also be too widespread to ignore. Whether to use cannabis or any drug is a personal decision. Whether cannabis should be legal is a political issue. But its precise legal status is far less important than making sure that anyone who uses it is aware of the risk. So we're living in a free country. You should be able to do what you want to do. But there is a time and a place to do it. Most cigarette smokers do not die of lung cancer. Most cigarette smokers do not die of lung cancer. This is kind of a play on what NAMI said, that most people with mental illness do not become violent. And that is true. Most means more than half. So it says here, most cigarette smokers do not die of lung cancer. But we have made it widely known that cigarettes cause cancer. Full stop. Most people who drink and drive, most people, most people who drink and drive do not have fatal accidents. 
but we have highlighted the cases of those who do. Makes sense. How many people have had a few drinks, go home, do not cause an accident? How many people who smoke die of something else? They may die of bladder cancer. They may die of throat cancer, but they don't die of lung cancer. So the statements are correct. But to say that most people with mental illness are not violent, it's, it's true as well. But it is the person as a whole, what they eat, how they live, how they think, how they were raised, their goals in life. Where are they at today? If they start with smoking marijuana, it can have an effect on the state of the mental health. And that when your mental health starts giving you ideas and you are prone to anxiety and depression and, and, and fatigue and irritability, then medical marijuana could actually aggravate that in people. And that's what it is about. And some of you may say, yeah, okay, so you're talking about the exceptions. You know how much money is raised in breast cancer research? It is the poster child of cancer. The poster child is breast cancer. October, National Breast Cancer Awareness Month. How long have we known about this? How long have we been fighting cancer? With all the billions and billions and billions that have been raised by people, how far have we come in eliminating cancer? Not everybody who has cancer has breast cancer. Not everybody who uses marijuana will become violent. But if the facts show that it does have an effect. I mean, we all know that THC has a psychoactive effect on the mind. That's the whole reason why people smoke it. They want to feel relaxed. They want to get high. They want to party. They want to be inhibited. They, they just want to be able to be themselves, whatever that means. How can you be yourself if you are in an altered state? Then work on your own psychology to become more of a loose person. If you are an introvert, you cannot become an extrovert just because you use medical marijuana or marijuana. If you are an extrovert, you want to be introvert, has nothing to do with smoking marijuana to get there. Go get therapy. Go read books. Go meditate. Find other ways if that is what you're trying to accomplish. But those who use it liberally and say, well, you know, it makes me feel good. I understand. It's not about how you feel. It's also the people in your surroundings. How do you make them feel? We have responsibilities towards society. We have responsibilities towards our own family members. You live on your own. Do whatever you want. It's your life. You're an adult. But you live in society and it can affect people. So we need equally unambiguous and well-funded advertising campaigns on the risk of cannabis. Instead, we are now in the worst of all in the worst of all worlds. Marijuana is legal in some states, illegal in others, dangerously potent, and sold without warnings everywhere. But before we can do anything, we, especially Cannabis advocates and those in the elite media who have for too long credulously accepted their claims need to come to terms with the truth 
about the science of marijuana. That adjustment may be painful, but the alternative is far worse, as the patients at Mid-Hudson Forensic Psychiatric Institute and their victims know. If you look into the media world, and I'm not saying everybody, so i got to be careful here too, but we all know that people in the entertainment industry use a lot of drugs, a cocaine, heroin, meth- uh, marijuana, because in their own minds, they are so stressed. They are so, they live such a much more stressful life than any of us. Trust me, as we get older and you reflect on your life, and especially if you have somebody next to you reflecting on things that happen in life, you go by all the stressors that you went through and that you survived and the ones that slowed you down and the ones that hurt you and the ones that affected you in such a way that you will never recuperate from. We all have stress. If you have absolutely no stress in this life, there is something wrong with you. We all, if we don't have stress in our own self, it's usually projected upon us through the world in which we live. And so stress can be mental. Stress can be physical and emotional. There are people who say, I have no stress, but they have diarrhea. They have constipation. They have rashes. They're scratching themselves all the time. They're losing their hair. They're plucking their hair out. And you say, you have stress? No. No. No, life is good. Oh, you do. Look at you. We all deal with stress. It is what tools are we going to use to overcome those stressors and what what kind of... um, What kind of things are we going to implement with it to improve not just the quality of our own life, but also that of others? So, having said that, let's move on to the next topic. I am so sorry there was a caller who called in, 5228255, and I took too long, so they hung up. I'm so sorry. If you want to call in, chime in, by all means, 5228255. So I wanted to discuss, let me see what the other topic is that I had. Well, I got it in my hand right here. Um, there was, was a combination of topics. There was one, like I said earlier, there was one about aged garlic, but also about Roundup, uh, the Monsanto thing. But let's talk a little bit about liver. Liver is really interesting. The liver. So the liver does a lot of work on us, and it... Uh, it is very much involved in helping to digest, process nutrients that come to it on its way to the cells. They come out of the small intestine through the portal vein. The, the liver has to enzymatically break it down further to make it absorbable by the cells, then send it back into the bloodstream to the heart, lungs, and then the cells. And then whatever comes back, has to be eliminated. So the liver is very, very busy, and there are issues that can happen with the liver because with the big changes in diet, the big changes in 
the environmental toxins that we're continuously exposed to, the the uh, the tremendous increase in surrounding of electronics, it starts to affect how we do business in the liver. So let me get to my caller. Good morning, caller. This is Jacobus. Who are you? Jacobus, it's Carol. Carol. Who are you? Were you the one who just called earlier? I was. I'm so that's sorry. Okay. Yeah. That's okay, dear. So I don't know if you've covered this already, but vaccines are in the headlines like every single day. Yeah. So if you could tell us your resource for the vaccine campaign going on in Montana and some thoughts on that, please. I'll okay. hang up and just listen. Thank you, dear. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, that's an interesting topic. Um, Yes, vaccines are in the news. I am actually going to have a show with some of the ladies who are part of the Montanans for Vaccine Choice. Again, this is not a group that says you should not vaccinate. It is just that they say get the facts. Once you have the facts, you make a more educated choice. You cannot leave it up to a medical doctor or a physician assistant or a, a nurse practitioner to just who says you got to take your vaccines. It is like telling somebody who is allergic to bananas, well, you got to eat bananas. Well, no, I can't because I got an anaphylactic shock. Well, I don't care. You got to take them. Doctor's orders. Vaccines are a very tough topic to talk about because it has been in the news lately and uh, and people like to uh, talk about it because it can be so controversial. The biggest problem that we're dealing with is that 30, 40 years ago, you would have maybe six vaccines that you needed to have before you were two years old. At this point, you'll get at least 35 before you're two years old, and you get 60 to 80 by the time you go to school. And school, for many, is kindergarten. How can we know that everything that is injected through the skin into the bloodstream is safe for us to use, for all of us. The controversy because of sustainability and life uh, uh, shelf stability of vaccines, they have had to use thimerosal, mercury, aluminum uh, that are there to preserve the vaccine. So by the time you need it, it's still potent, so to say. Well, how much of that do we really want to have in our body? The other controversy that we're dealing with is that companies who make vaccines have had to admit that they're using fetal tissues from aborted babies. They have used, not have, they are using fetal tissue from aborted babies in order to get into the body and to the absorption what they need. That alone should be a huge red flag for people that you are injected not just with human tissue, but also that it can contain animal tissue and that that is simply injected into your system with the expectation is there to protect you. Protect you from what? Why? What? Why this? There are physicians, there are doctors who do chelation therapy. They're naturopathic physicians usually. 
they inject you and they put a bag of nutrients such as vitamin C, minerals that help to chelate heavy toxins. Uh, they have nutrients in it to replenish the nutrients in your body. Why is that? Guess what? If you have more nutrients, your immune system becomes stronger. So to simply say, I need to have a vaccine to make my immune system stronger is the biggest baloney there is. And especially based on what is all in that in those vaccines that should double, triple question you to are you going to go ahead of this or are you going to speak out? And I have to say there was an article the other day, a letter to the editor about a mother whose son was supposed to go to this uh, with the Bozeman High School band and the choir to go to Carnegie Hall in New York. And it was like an unbelievable trip. And I can totally, totally understand that if your child has practiced for months for this unbelievable opportunity to go to the big stage and to make that trip and have done fundraiser, and then she says he got strep throat and what happened was now we couldn't go. Doctor said, you cannot go. So the devastation, I understand the frustration, the sadness, the grief is one thing that not just the child dealt with, but the family. They felt they, they have helped him along the way. And now he cannot go because of strep throat. But what is the next comment? She says, let this be a warning for everybody that... You need to have your child vaccinated. She says her child was fully vaccinated. Well, if he was vaccinated, how come he did get the disorder? We're always talking about that we're getting uh, uh, that that those who are not vaccinated get sick and then they make everybody else sick. Well, it's an oxymoron. If you get vaccinated to be avoiding diseases, how can you get sick then from somebody who has the disease? And the point is, for me, to say that strep throat is caused by vaccines or no vaccines is baloney. I said earlier, there is a lot of ailments that we acquire in our body, in our daily living, simply from eating too much sugar, not getting enough sleep. Being too stressed out, too much going on in life. I can totally understand that students who are getting ready for this unbelievable trip and scramble to get that last bit of money together and 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 practice, 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 6 30 in the morning practices, working homework late at night till 11, 12, barely getting any sleep, because we do it for the greater good. Once we get back, then we'll take care of ourselves. No. It is very well possible that this young man got sick because his immune system was already compromised because of other factors, such as diet, such as not having enough sleep, maybe too much sugar, not eating healthy. You know, different things cause diseases. We cannot just look at the disease and then start blaming other people. You're diseased. It was time for your body to slow down. Sadly enough, in this case, the body didn't want to wait 
another week. And so that is why he got what he had when it happened. So anyway, we're going to take a short break. Hopefully that answers some of your questions, Carol. I'll be back in a few minutes. Talk to you soon. 522-TALK. Let's, let's get ready to rumble. Okay, good. So fatty liver disease, there's, uh, there's definitely something going on. And right now we're about, uh, talking about fatty liver. It's, uh, we're not going to get it done. So we'll see. We'll, we'll pick it up in another show when I have time. There is researchers in the pharmaceutical industry are working to develop drugs to treat a liver disease called non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, or N-A, non-alcoholic, stato, S-T-E-A, S-T-E-A-T-O, steatohepatitis, S-H. Pharmaceutical executives believe there is a $35 billion market for such drugs globally. This thinking is based on a report by the Center for Disease Analysis that in the U.S. alone, $5 billion annually is spent in medical costs related to the diseased fatty liver, chemotherapy for cancer, transplants, and other medical or hospital services. As an example of the extent of the easily preventable liver disease, so did you hear what I said? The easily preventable liver disease, Lori Ianau, writing for CNBC, reports that the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida, has a liver transplant group handling an onslaught of patients who have come from all over the country in hopes of a change at life. She notes that the disease is sweeping the nation at epic proportions. People crowd the unit and undergo scores of testing and evaluation in an effort to get on the hospital's coveted, coveted transplant list. It's a program with a 94% survival rate after liver transplant, one of the highest in the nation. However, Ianau says the culprit is a serious form of fatty liver disease called non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, also known as NASH, an outgrowth of the obesity epidemic in the Western world and around the globe. It causes scarring and inflammation. It can lead to liver cirrhosis, cardiac and lung complications, liver cancer, and death. Yet few people know about it. She writes that the CDA has determined that millions of people of all ages suffer from some state of fatty liver disease, perhaps 89 million in the United States alone. That is a third, almost a fourth of the population. A third, third well, close to maybe 33%, four, 35% or so. That's pretty high. That Because that doesn't have to include young children. You wouldn't expect that young inhabitants of this country would have that problem. That figure could be low depending on the degree and at which stage it is determined by researchers that fatty liver conditions have started, including fatty liver that can happen in early childhood. The National Institutes of Health estimates as many as 30 million people have NASH, which is a detectable an advanced stage of fatty liver disease, a non-drug solution which would ultimately stop the drain in healthcare resources, is to educate people who are eating too many fats combined with processed sugars. 
as well as certain animal products about what to eat and what to avoid. Symptoms of NASH, so non-alcoholic, steatohepatitis, include fibrosis, ascites, which is fluid accumulation in the abdomen, bleeding viruses in the esophagus, and liver cancer. Unless nutrition education and dietary recommendation in the U.S. and other industrialized societies change, NASH, or fatty liver disease, will continue to challenge the health and well-being of hundreds of millions of people and the financial resources of nations. It isn't uncommon, according to Iano's report, for liver specialists to be treating people with NASH in their 20s and 30s, and even in the pediatric age group. According to, well, so it talks about Anthony Williams, and I will get to him, but heart problems such as high blood pressure, as well as hyperglycemia, type 2 diabetes, eczema, rashes that won't go away, obesity, and fungal infections are just a few of the warning signs that a fatty liver, that a fatty liver condition is likely challenging the body. Heart problems, such as high blood pressure, as well as hyperglycemia, type 2 diabetes, eczema, rashes that won't go away, obesity, and fungal infections. Eliminating refined carbohydrates, processed sugars, such as high fructose corn syrup and others, and unhealthy fats, including minimizing meats, is part of the process for healing. Now, then the next article, and this came was both of these were published in the Wellbeing Journal, and I've read about the well from the Wellbeing Journal over the years. This is the March-April 2019 uh, volume, volume 28, number two, and I have this article here by Anthony William, and as you know, uh, one of the callers who calls regularly mentions his name on a regular basis that uh, he is a medical medium. So let me tell you a little bit about Anthony William before we jump on it. He is the number one New York Times bestselling author of Medical Medium, Life-Changing Foods, Thyroid Healing, and now a book called Liver Rescue. He was born with the unique ability to converse with the spirit of compassion who provides him with extraordinary, accurate health information that's often far ahead of its time. Since age four, when he shocked his family, by announcing that his symptom-free grandmother had lung cancer, with which medical testing soon confirmed, Anthony has been using his gift to read people's conditions and tell them how to recover their health. His unprecedented accuracy and success rate as the medical medium have, quote-unquote, medical medium, have earned him the trust and love of millions worldwide, among them movie stars, rock stars, billionaires. Well, that makes no difference, right? I mean... <laughs> A rock star still has to put one foot in front of the other. They usually do on stage. Uh, uh, movie stars, they may lay flat, but they may also walk one foot in front of the other. So, the, you know. uh, Professional athletes, now there you go. Best-selling authors and countless others from all walks of life who could not find a way to heal until he provided them with insights from spirit. Anthony has also become an invaluable resource to doctors who need help solving the most difficult cases. 
I truly think that when you talk to somebody who is a medical intuitive, a medical medium, that when they tell you something that is going on in your body, again, I'm not a researcher, I haven't researched it, but I think that most, so that means more than half, (laughs) most people already deep down inside knew that something was going wrong and they probably can pinpoint exactly where it's coming from. But then we ignore it because we don't trust ourselves. This is an issue that is such a big part of Western society. We are just being told that we as individuals cannot trust ourselves. We have to find help from outside. We need the media to tell us. We need to learn it from documentaries. We need to hear it from a doctor. We need to hear it from anybody but ourselves. That shows to me, it's the same when you go to therapy with a psychologist or any other therapist, there will come the time that when the coin finally falls through and you get it, you're done with therapy for that specific issue. Because once you get it, you are immediately inspired to make changes. You go like, You got that aha moment. It makes total sense. But if you're just being told and you don't get it, you will continue to go to therapy or you will continue to go to doctors for a solution for your health problem. You will continue to bet on the wrong horse and simply say, that's what I need to do. You have to learn, all of us, myself included, to be, become more independent thinkers so that the independence in our own heart will go back to our minds and let the mind know that this is the truth that is inspired. It comes from the spirit world. It, it comes down into our heart. We filter it and we do with it what is needed. And if it has to go to the mind to help us make decisions for the better, then that's how it works. And I look at this and I say, you know, Anthony, you hit some interesting things, but personally, I don't agree with everything. And and, and one of the things that he says right now is that it is good, you know, listen, if you get up in the morning, one thing that he says to the liver is good to do, drink fresh celery juice. Now, I get that. That's great stuff. I mean, f- celery juice is kind of bitter And bitter really gets a lot of things going. He says some fun things in the article too. So he says, what if you have a fatty liver? But there are things that I look at and I say, if you say, this is the issue that I have. And this is simply from my experience working in this field. I sometimes get the best advice listening to the people who come and talk to me because they have lived through it. They are able to paint a picture that is a reality in their life, a reality from which they build their future steps. They may be the wrong steps, but most of the time they are the right steps. They move, uh, they move forward from that. 
if you have a medical medium such as Anthony William, and I'm not denying that the man is gifted, so I got to be careful because some of you know him or read his books. I love medical intuitives. I've had him on my radio show. I trust it. I believe it. I know it works. But if I hear that this guy is four years ahead of the ongoing research, I'm not, listen, there is research going on that is absolutely behind the times. We're trying to catch up with all the newness that's coming, and that's why alternative medicine is so poo-pooed upon by Western medicine because Western medicine says, prove it. So you need to spend all this money on double-blind placebo-controlled studies that ruin either a company or a person. It's just impossible to do. And just because you have a stack load of anecdotal information that you use to inspire people and, and, and you use in your own life, it doesn't mean it's not true. And just because something is scientifically researched, we cannot always believe the research because we don't know who paid for it. The pharmaceutical companies will say that the products don't hurt anybody. They, they spend 15 seconds of a commercial to tell you all about the side effects, but they will tell you straight in your face, this is not dangerous. They're not telling you that they have never done the extensive studies whereby 300 million people have been tested. They simply say, we'll find out in 10 years if this really was a good idea or not. And so we're finding out that many of the medications have so many side effects that over time they have been reduced in circulation or they have been taken out of the market altogether. So Anthony Williams says something. They say he's four years ahead of all the research. Well, I think, first of all, Anthony Williams is trying to tell us that we have the power within us he just has developed, has focused on it, was given, it, it became obvious in his life. I don't think that if he is a true medium, that he would say that we do not have the power and he has the power. But if it is the case, then we should do all the medical research, any medical prescription, any herb, any uh, potato that you eat, any piece of meat should go first go be discussed with Anthony because he can tell you if it is good or not good. His information is not detailed to Jacobus. It's a guideline. And that's what I have a problem with when people have guidelines that they, they automatically assume it's the truth. The truth is is what it does to you. Peanut butter is awesome with jelly. But some people can die from eating peanuts. So what does it make it? Is it a, is it a poison or is it a, is a nutritious nut or seed or whatever you want to call it? What works for one doesn't work for another. And what I have a problem with in his article when he talks about the liver, I realize that. But if he says drink fresh juices every day. I think personally that fresh juices every day could really give too much sugar. I don't think that it is healthy for all individuals to, to, to eat that much fruit to suppress your appetite. And, and he says in his article 
that the current diets that are high pro of high fat, high protein, uh, low carbohydrates, he's probably referring to the ketogenic diet, is dangerous because it thickens the blood. And he says when the blood gets thickened, then the liver has a hard time processing it. And it says the liver also, out of the nutrients, needs to find the antioxidants. It needs to find the vitamins and minerals. It needs to find the the proteins. It needs to find all those micronutrients. And if the blood is too thick, it is too difficult for the liver to find them and process them. So he says we need to have liquid blood, very liquid, so that the liver can process it. It needs oxygen. It needs it needs water. Yes, I understand. But that doesn't make a diet. And he talks about it over here. He said there are people who are promoting a high-fat, high-protein diet, but this is a harmful trend. Whether the fat is plant-based and comes from food like nuts, soy, and oils or wherever, or, or whether it's animal-based and comes from eggs, milk, cheese, or chicken— Too much fat thickens the blood, ages the body, and is hard on the body and the liver. Well, how much is too much? We've been going through 50 years of being told by Ansel Keys to get away from the saturated fats, to get away from the, to to, to increase the carbohydrates because fat caused heart disease. And what have we gotten? We've gotten a nation that is obese, more than any other nation in the world. We have developed a nation that is dealing with incredible hormonal imbalances. We are dealing with a nation that has that is flooded with inflammatory disorders that are simply caused by sugars, carbohydrates, and not enough of the correct fats, omega-3s, the balance between omega-3 and omega-6s. We have promoted for, been promoted for 50 years to go away from the animal fat that the plant fat was the way to go. And we have seen the results. And now if I were to talk to Anthony William, I would ask him that. And I would say, how do you explain what happened? So it's not an isolated point that needs to be brought up uh, about not eating eating the fat. It also comes down to an incredible increase of, in adding sugar to products to make them shelf-stable. And not just sugar. Normal sugar wasn't even good enough because there are people who say, well, wait a second, that costs me money. I got I, I to gotta, I gotta go in the field and get those beets out of there and the cane sugar. I, gotta, I have to harvest that with equipment. That costs me a lot of money. Is there a way that I can create a chemical that also tastes sweet and that probably will do the trick? So you start having fructose and high fructose corn syrup and you're going to have the, the, uh, the artificial flavors and you're going to have the, uh, all the chemicals that we use, aspartame, uh, to, to, and, and, and sp- sp- Splenda and stuff that, that is not natural, but it is a quick way out. We, we can get by with a chemical to sweeten the stuff because if it doesn't stay sweet, we're not going to eat. Hey, that rhymes. I didn't think about that. If it ain't sweet, we won't eat, right? So that is a problem. 
And to talk about fat, the problem is not the fat. It is what we eat with the fat. And the people in a ketogenic diet say, if we use more fat because we've been depleted of fats for so long, and we look at all the healthy fats that are available right now, people are feeling better. And he says what the, what these people are losing, uh, let's see, how does he say it? Too much fat thickens the blood, ages the body, and is hard on the body and the liver. What is happening when people are doing these diets that are high fat, high protein, low carbohydrate? It's really more moderate fat. But, and so... Again, what happening to people who are doing these diets that are high fat, high protein, low carbohydrate, and low fruit is they're losing a lot of water. If they're losing weight, it is largely water. So people think they're losing weight effectively, but they're really just dehydrating themselves, thickening the fat in the blood, and starving the brain of the glucose it needs from fruit and carbohydrate-rich vegetables to function well. The liver needs oxygen to do its job well, and the thicker the blood, the less oxygen is present. The liver also needs water. So when people eat high fat, pro high protein, lose water, it's another strike against the liver. Your liver needs water to cleanse it and perform the detoxification process, and it needs oxygen. Anyway, there is so much to say about it. I, I hope... We've come to the end of three hours. I can't believe it. I'm sitting over here and I'm just enjoying myself. I hope you have enjoyed enjoyed the show as well. I will be back next week. Uh, very interesting program. Hopefully you will tune in again next week. See you then.